I would like to, so as not to surprise you, I want to pray for the country of Egypt this morning because uh, Egypt is still very much a, uh, in very much has still been a house of bondage for its own people. And uh, 40% of the people of Egypt live on less than $2 a day. And, uh, and you have seen what is going on there. Last time we talked about Tunisia. This is clearly something that has been contagious, that the, the, the logic of, of the open society has asserted itself. <coughs> uh, I think I have mentioned to you the books by Karl Popper, The Open Society and Its Enemies. And uh, the way he argues for, for the way an open society works will sometimes do what we are seeing in, in, uh, in Tunisia and Egypt because the way people are finding uh, expression, the way they are able to express themselves through internet, Twitter, and so on, is opening the society in ways that the rulers cannot, they don't know how to stop it. So <clears throat> let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this opportunity to... to uh, come apart and study the Bible, study the book of Revelation, surely the greatest liberation project ever undertaken. And we thank you that you have intervened in our history and that you are, uh, that you are determined to defeat the forces of evil. And then we pause to remember the people of Egypt. You know that they, are, um, that they have suffered, and uh, you know Egypt well in your history. And we pray that uh, the outcome will be good for the people of Egypt, that they will have dignity and freedom, and that there will not be violence. We ask in your name. Amen. Yes, it moved me yesterday when I heard that the army had been deployed in the streets of Cairo, but the army did not fire on the, so on the people. And they did not, they did not uh, uh, you know, they could use overwhelming force, which of course could be quite devastating in a, in a city like Cairo with such a population, 16 to 18 million people in that city. Uh, and then, then to, to start firing with tanks and stuff like that, you can just imagine what that could lead to. So that's uh, something to, to watch out for. I, I have a wonderful memory from Egypt traveling there with my oldest daughter once, and, and i just just hoping that that it will, it will come, out, come out right. First announcement. <coughs> Richard Bauckham is going to be... Uh, I have mentioned Richard Bauckham many times now in this class, and some of you have read... I think, Ed, you have read his book, uh, The Climax of Prophecy. Yeah. Yes, and Brad, you have read uh, The Theology of the Book of Revelation. Did you read the other one too? Richard Bauckham is a, is a world-renowned uh, uh, scholar, theologian, and New Testament scholar with a very varied background, and he has published many books. He was one of my advisors at the University of St. Andrews. He has been on the doctrinal committee uh, board for the Anglican Church and is probably one of the people who, who helped the Anglican Church change their statement on, on the on the idea of eternal punishment, or at least they have, they have changed that somewhat. And um, uh, he's written many books. He's written two books on, on Revelation and a number of articles. And uh, he will be here uh, uh, on Tuesday, February 8th at noon. 
there will be a um, question and answer session with the book of Revelation as the topic, and Brad Cole will, will be the moderator. He will be the one answering, uh, asking the questions. And there are quite a few medical students attending those sessions that Brad has been having. Now, for how long have you been doing this? Five years? Yeah, Brad and Dorothy have been, been leading out in that. And, and, and uh, which book are you in nowadays, now, these days? You just finished Amos. Well, Amos is a good book to read when there is upheaval in Egypt. <laughs> so, so that will be interesting uh, to see. I think uh, Brad has shown me the questions uh, he's planning to a ask, and I think that could be quite a quite an uh, interesting session. We know that you are busy, and that the noon hour might not work, but uh, we people are welcome to attend. Is that okay? And then Tuesday uh, at 5.30 p.m., all of, the, all of the meetings will be in the alumni hall. We thought that the evening sessions would be in the Centennial Complex, but it looks like we will, we will do everything in the alumni hall, uh, in the, what I used to think about as the pathology building, but I'm uh, not sure if that <laughs> works anymore. Anyway, in the evening at 5.30, there will be two lectures. There will be a break in between those lectures with a, with a light meal, where we, are, we will serve some food then. And his topic then will be individualism and community in the Gospel of John. He has written two, maybe three books, two books specifically on the Gospel of John. Uh, one of them is called uh, The Gospel as Eyewitness Testimony, and the other one is on the... I can't remember the title. I will send you an email, all of you who are on my my mailing list, I will send you an email on, on these things. We would, of course, be happy if, if the community is able to show, uh, show up and be, attend these lectures because it is always a risk to do something like this here where a person like Bochum, who is so well-known in other communities, isn't well-known in Loma Linda. But two lectures on the Gospel of John on Tuesday and then two lectures on the Bible and ecology on, on Wednesday. And these sessions will be separate, so we will introduce. We w we're not sort of linking them. We're saying that he is giving two, two, two different sets of lectures in the evenings. His most recent book is called The Bible and Ecology, published in 2010. And I have just looked at it, and it looks like everything he does. If you look at his, uh, his books on Amazon.com, which admittedly is not you know, a scientific marketing, but, but they are all five stars. My reader, the reader responses there are very good. We certainly do our best to make, to make sure that we have good attendance there. So that that will be, that would be quite special to, to have him here. He's an extremely, uh, what should I say, unassuming person. But don't let that fool you, because he has he's an extremely disciplined person in the in the topics he has he has taken on. This is a cartoon from the most recent uh, issue of, uh, of Financial Times, <clears throat> and I just thought that it might be uh, relevant to show it to you. This, uh, you see the new reality there? You see what is going on there with the, the freedom movement that is now seeming to sweep uh, through much of or some parts of the Middle East? And then on the top of the mountain there, there is a World Economic Forum 
meeting in Davos, Switzerland. I have it every year. It is extremely expensive to attend. You have to be a very, very wealthy person to attend or have government or corporate sponsorship even to be there. Now tell me what that cartoon is trying to say. Yes, Davos is a, is a, is a winter sport uh, resort. I have been there. I have uh, ridden my bicycle through Davos a number of times, and I have skied there too. Not downhill skied. I have cross-country skied in Davos. It's high altitude, so you get out of breath, but it's a beautiful place. I have speed skated too there. They have a famous skating rink there too. But I have never stayed in a hotel because that is too expensive. <laughs> it's a very expensive place. What's the cartoon saying? With the, with the World Economic Forum meeting on a mountain above the clouds, that there is a de- that there is a detached, there is a there is a distance, there is a no connection between the powers, the world economic powers, and the poor. That the plight of the poor is something that is not not really uh, really hitting the radar of those who are in the ruling position, and we'll see see how it ends, but that is in some ways also a, a message, a, a, a concern of the Bible, certainly in Amos, and in Revelation too, where there is an economic critique, uh, uh, an assertion of, of rights denied, you might say. So uh, I thought this was in some ways pertinent to things we have been talking about here, that uh, that. Uh, some people could not is, are not that interested in liberty because they are living on the right side uh, side of the clouds, as it were. Let's start reading the first three verses, or uh, cutting cutting the text in the middle of verse three. So we will read uh, verses one through three a. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and locked and sealed it over him, so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> so uh, just just to get a, a few uh, uh, sort of position ourselves to draw some uh, first impressions from this text. Now, any any Old Testament allusions here? Now, now we're approaching the end of the story, and and uh, we're looking. You know, here is a text that uh, we certainly have reason to discuss in, in from various angles. But ju- let's just let's just uh, do our do our uh, sort of text analysis with respect to the Old Testament, the ancient serpent, and that connects you to the beginning of the biblical narrative, surely. Uh, the serpent, and then the ancient serpent, and so that must be be the illusion he intends to 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 uh, give us. Yes. Anything else? The bottomless pit. The bottomless pit. Where would you go for that? Well, there are various images, but since this is uh, in the sort of cosmic conflict uh, uh, pr- uh, panorama of text, the the most. Uh, the most promising text there is from Isaiah. Now there are two 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 uh, places to go in Isaiah for for the bottomless pit. One is in Isaiah 14, where the person who falls from heaven 
in Isaiah 14 eventually ends up in the abyss, in the abyssos, in the bottomless pit. So, so the Isaiah imagery there is good. And then there is in Isaiah 24 or 25 or in the, in the so-called apocalyptic section of Isaiah, there is also a notion of the, of the powers or someone being locked up in the pit. So there are two two uh, uh, Old Testament uh, or Isianic antecedents for the, the pit or the pit imagery. Uh, anything else you want to do there with this text? How about, how about so that he would deceive the nations no more? The verbal perspective there. We have the, the, the agent, we have the serpent who is uh, the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, all those uh, all those aliases to make sure we don't we we know who we're talking about. But how about the verbal element? So that he would deceive the nations no more. Where can we go to the Old Testament for that? This is a this is said a number of times in Revelation that he deceives. But does the Old Testament talk about that? Same thing in Genesis three. Same same thing. The serpent is the, in in Genesis three. And when God talks to Adam and Eve after they have eaten of the tree, uh, then Adam will say, the woman gave me. And the woman, Eve, will say, the serpent deceived me. So there are quite, quite obvious, quite almost in your face linkages to the book of Genesis. So what are we seeing here? Uh, and that, I think... Is a sort of it's quite a, a crucial thing. We're in Revelation 20 now, and the story is ending. It's the end of the story, and then here is Genesis, uh, and that's you will admit that that's the beginning of the story. <laughs> so, what is happening here? What 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 sort of use is that? And so yes, it isn't over. But there is a, at least there is a certain echo of Genesis in the ending of the story. What might that make you and me sort of, what use is that? What, could, what sort of use could we make of that? When you come to the ending of a book, uh, what should the ending of a book do? <laughs> well, what do, en- what do endings of, of books usually do? You know, like that. What, what are endings of books good for anyway? I mean, most books, any book. Most books, the ending of the book has a, a sort of, you know, you come, you come home, you solve the plot. You have the beginning, you have a middle, you have an ending. Do you have that in the Bible? Sort of, as a, in a sort of, you know, broad narrative sense, you have a beginning of the story. That's it. That's your beginning. You have a middle. What was the middle, by the way? That's the Jesus story. That is where the plot Sort of, you know, there is a kind of the, the ex, maybe most exciting part of the, of, the, of, of the story. So there is, a, there is a middle here. And does the middle of the story, does the Jesus story here in the middle, does that have any relationship to the beginning of the story? Quite a bit, quite a bit. And then there is the ending of the story. But here is what I should have put that statement into your handout that sometimes the plot can be quite confusing. Sometimes you don't really know where you are. 
until you get to the ending. In the end of the book, things sort themselves out, and confusion may have reigned, you know, as you were reading the book. But then in the ending of the book, things come together. So you might have been thoroughly confused all along, but when you come to the ending, then you see it. Well, of course, the ending might also take you by such surprise that you have to say, I have no idea why it is ending like this, because we, we did not come to the ending armed. You know, we, we were not sort of, sort of readied by our prior reading of the story to, to, uh, to be able to digest the ending. And what do you do then? You have to reread it again. You have to go back and do, you know, you have to go back and do a plot construct and see what was it we missed since our, since since the plot construct we had did not get us ready for the ending. We that that the ending doesn't fit the story that we had sort of developed in our minds. I I will bring you that. I think I might have shown you that statement before. But uh, when I wrote my, my thesis at the University of St. Andrews with Richard Bochum as one of my advisors, he, I, I had a hard time get, launching the idea that, of doing a cosmic conflict reading of Revelation because there is a, such a strong Roman, Empire, Roman imperial grounding in the academic community. So I was struggling very much to to find a way to set up my, my project. And, and uh, what I did, I started from the end. My, my first chapter on text, I have a conceptual chapter, then I have a chapter on method, as, you need, as one must, and then I started not in chapter one, but I started in chapter 20. And I started with the ending, just to empower the, the, the uh, storyline that I wanted to to uh, to show was there, and uh, and then I found a statement by David Steinmetz. And David Steinmetz is, is uh, Steinmetz is a very learned uh, Reformation scholar, church historian, teaching at Duke, and he has written uh, something on on how to read narratives. and And Steinmetz says that sometimes everything is confusing, but until you come to the ending. So the wisest thing you can do sometimes is to, to cheat, to cheat and read the ending first. You know, you read the ending first. You read the book backwards. That's what he says to do. Well, I had started doing that before I saw that <coughs> statement, but I was really happy because he is a very influential scholar, and, and who, can, who can deny me doing something like that when a big, big name scholar has said that's how you do it. <coughs> so anyway, <coughs> we, are not, we haven't done that. We haven't cheated. Uh, but we have had warned each other that we needed to be re-readers, of course, which makes, makes that risk much, much uh, less. So my headline for this text is Action at Last. Action at Last. So here is what... I would uh, wonder uh, for you, you mustn't look at your handouts here and, 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 and get it from me. <clears throat> the picture here is Albrecht Dürer. 
Albrecht Dürer, this is, this is 500 years ago, uh, living about the time of the Reformation. I actually think this is a little pre-Reformation. Uh, I'm not 100% sure about the date. But who is this figure here? So can you see who is who in this, in this uh, illustration? See the angel? And the angel has what? Has a key. See the key there? And here is the dragon. So, and there is the bottomless pit. So here is the angel with the key and the chain and the bottomless pit. And finally, finally God is taking action and doing something. Isn't that wonderful? <coughs> That's what the book of Revelation is showing here. And, and it has switched now from, from the passive voice to the active voice. Did you see that? There is a switch from the passive to the active voice. He ceased. He bound, he threw, he locked, he sealed. Didn't see the, the verbs here? These are, these are strong verbs. So, so what did he do? You read them out, out to me and I will put them on the board. He ceased. Was that the first one? He ceased. These are just the verbs. And then he did what? Then he bound. And through, and locked, and sealed, all in the active voice, which is uncharacteristic of the book of Revelation, which seems to prefer the passive voice. The passive voice does what? It anonymizes the acting subject. So here there is no doubt. There is action. Now, are these... Are these uh, uh, sort of g good action verbs? They're quite good action verbs, aren't they? Now, now here's somebody who was uh, that, uh, you know, when you write, somebody has said about writing, good writing, that you need, you need good verbs, strong verbs. So you have to look at your, our sentences and see, you know, are the sentences, do they have sort of limp, flaccid, sort of, trivial verbs in them, or, or could, you, could you energize the sentence just a little bit more by finding a stronger verb, a better verb? You know, sentences with is, you know, he is, you know, that is not a good sentence. You have to have a verb that, that, that is up to something, you know. And on writing too, it has been said that the adjective is the mortal enemy of the noun. Have you heard that before? So what is wrong if you need an adjective? The verb's not strong enough. Well, or the noun isn't strong enough. Either way, you know, if you need to, but it could be the verb that isn't strong enough, it could be the noun that is also not strong enough. Well, you can hardly fault John for on any of these points here. He has not, he has not been, you know, he has very good verbs here. So you have, you have a strong action. Uh, 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 the picture of strong action here. And now your questions. <laughs> so there is action here. Now to our questions. Now many of you are veteran Bible readers and that is to your disadvantage here. Because if you hadn't been a, di uh, a veteran Bible reader you would have known exactly which question to ask. That is exactly the question that we, we need to ask, that question at least. Now, if 
forceful action is now taken at last. Why was it not done sooner? That is certainly a question that people have been asking. And, and, and people who, who uh, do not see any reason not to ask, uh, you know, whatever question comes to mind would, would not be scared to ask to raise that question. The connection with John, by the way, I think is quite helpful because there is a throwing out, there is a sort of curtailment of the, of, of, of the opposing power in, in the Gospel of John too, isn't there? Uh, an end actually to it, because the, now the ruler of this world in the Gospel of John is who? It would be Satan there too, and now he will be thrown out. So there is a, even though that is in a, in a passive uh, uh, voice, it clearly indicates that the acting subject, if we were to, to revert it into the active voice, who will throw him out? Who is going to throw out the ruler of this world in, in, in John 12? Jesus will throw him out. I will throw him out. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be thrown out. Now I will throw out the ruler of this world. And then he switches to the active voice, or he switches at least to focus on himself. And I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. You know. So what you're doing there, what we're seeing there, is obviously something, something very monumental. A monumental event described in language, where there is in figurative language. You know. So here again then, we could have a very monumental event that the text that our author, he energizes his verbs to make sure you and me understand that it is a monumental event. But it is figurative language. It's figurative language. Like David Barr, who is a Revelation scholar, he has said, Revelation doesn't mean what it says. Revelation means what it means which of course sounds a bit nihilistic, but there is a sort of, there is clearly something that needs to be interpreted between, between the, the words that are used and the, and the reality that is, that is the, in those verbs. Be, yes. Yes, why didn't he just kill him? Exactly. And your question. Well, I, that's, that's exactly what I thought, we, you know, that would be a legitimate argument to make to those who think that the Roman Empire is the sort of the, the grounding of the storyline in Revelation. Now, the two figures that are supposed to be the Roman Empire figures in the story are the beast from the earth and the beast from the sea. And those two, they were disposed of in Revelation 19. Hoi duo, those two, they were thrown into the lake of fire. Now there is just, you know, this figure left. So, if this is what you find at the ending of the story. Then this character has been a significant character in the beginning of the story. It might, in fact, be a story that is significantly about him. So that point, I think, you could make there. And I, I tried to make that in, in, in sort of my argument for, for downgrading the status of the Roman imperial interpretation. Here is one answer. Why wasn't action ta- taken earlier? I think that is a very legitimate question, of course, if there is intervention. So you would have to say that maybe this is a kind of intervention that 
that isn't exactly what we had, what we thought, you know, what the words on the surface led us to think. It might have been something else, or you could be, you know, somewhat sort of uh, fatalistic and say it's better late than never. But that wouldn't necessarily be all that reassuring, because for, if forceful action is in view, you know, why is it better to do it now than at some earlier point when you might in fact have, have been able to, to, uh, to put, put the evil one in his place? Well, let's read some more. Let's read the rest of chapter 20, verse three, uh, 23b. After that, he must be let out for a little while. Why will he be released? Indeed, why must he be released? Because this is one of the key words in the, in the storyline in Revelation. The word in Greek is, the, is a very little word. It has, you know, the word, this is just in English, it would be like this, the word day, which is a word, uh, it's a, an impersonal verb, but it denotes necessity, you know. And the story in Revelation is like this, that it begins by John getting a message of what must take place. Day, the word is day, there it's used. And th that's in the prologue. Then there is in the epilogue, in Revelation 22, 6, that there is a sort of closing of the story, that it must take place. He has shown you what must take place. And then there is in a transition point in Revelation 4, verse 1, that's when you go from earth to heaven, and a door was opened in heaven. And then again, I will show you what must take place. So there is, a, there is the notion of necessity in this story. And now that word that sort of denotes necessity is here. You put to use for such an action like this. He must be released. So we have ingredients. You know, we have a sort of, sort of explanatory there is a kind of a rationale, an implied rationale here, even though that rationale is not implicit, explicit, it is implicit that there was some kind of necessity to it. Well, I know there is much more we could, could say here, but most people would say that, that to release Satan here does not make sense, that there should not be any reason to release him. And try that kind of idea for, you know, contemporary notions of, of justice and jurisprudence to leave, to release your chief villain, because that's what he is. And this person, you know, the prospect, I mean, what do you do? What sort of penal options do you have in your system? We have capital punishment. We have, uh, you know, life without parole. Uh, and stuff like that. So what would you choose here? Somebody paid his bail. Paid his bail. <laughs> well, this would be, he would be locked up without bail. I don't think he would get bail. Do you? I just wanted to say in, uh, in response to the previous comment that the answer of this, the, the notion of the second chance is the notion that the, the early church uh, apologist, Origen, Origen who, who we will talk about, uh, a little later, I want to return to him. I don't know if I mentioned him before, but here. But uh, <clears throat> he was—he was a person who had quite a good grasp of the cosmic conflict perspective in early Christianity, and he would have liked your argument because he would have. Origen was toying with the idea, with the idea seriously, seriously engaging the possibility: cannot God also save 
uh, Satan. You know, can he not also do that? You, that the restoration that God has in view is a restoration that it involves everybody. He 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 probably there is ambiguity on what his answer was, but he did engage that question. Let's uh, see what others have said here. Yes, we have several uh, uh, options in play here. Now, here is what I am suggesting to do. We'll consult the experts. <coughs> we, will, we will ask for advice. That's one of the most important things one can do in medicine, by the way. And, and to the extent that I have had any success in my career as a physician, it has been mostly because I, I had a very low threshold for asking, asking somebody when I wasn't sure. You know, that you just have to ask somebody who knows better, and if you're not sure, you have to make sure you get sure before you do anything, because you could really be sorry. So let's ask the experts and see what they say. <coughs> Here is Austin Ferrer, who is a great Revelation scholar, wrote a wonderful book called The Rebirth of Images, that in some ways was instrumental in reviving interest in apocalyptic literature in books like the book of Revelation in the 1960s. He's a, from the UK, very eloquent writer. But why is Satan merely bound, and why is he ever to be loosed again? Here is someone a little later than Austin Ferrer, also from the UK, Cared, uh, uh, I have uh, referred to him before. Why, once Satan had been securely sealed in the abyss, must he be let loose to wreak further havoc? And what claim does he have on God, that God is bound to give the devil his due? As though there is a sort of due process uh, uh, rationale behind this uh, confinement and release uh, of Satan. Still, here is J.P.M. Sweet, <coughs> who is also from the UK, and I uh, am proud to have met him once. He's a very, he, I'm not sure he's alive anymore because he was quite, quite old when I saw him, but he, is, he, he seemed like, just like his name. Very sweet. <laughs> but why, theologically, must he be loosed to deceive the nations? Why did he have to come down to earth with great wrath? You know, again, why does the villain let, why do we let him loose on earth? Why could he not have been liquidated from the beginning? Again, especially now that there is action taken. And here is a, a, a narrative commentator in the U.S., why not simply destroy Satan at the beginning of the thousand-year period? Why is it important that Satan is not destroyed during the millennial period? Well, good, nice. Experts, these are the questions they are asking. So far, you know, these experts are not completely up there on the mountain in Davos with no connection to what, what the rest of us are doing down here on the ground. You know, the sort of questions we are, we are asking. The question occurs to every reader of this text. Once Satan is bound and the earth enjoys a millennium of undemonized celebration, why must he be released again? Well, this is a millennialist talking here, and he is sort of accessing one view of the millennium, that millennium is a thousand years of a happy time where there is undemonized celebration, and then after the thousand years, you know, it breaks loose again. Not everyone would agree with that, but that's one view. And here is a very succinct question. What's the point? You know, what's the point indeed? What is it? That, of course, is quite a radical thought and, 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 and a quite an unusual thought in, in, a, in the usual sort of theological framework, the notion that God has something he needs to explain that God, as you are saying, God is on trial, 
and 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 that is another thing we would have to put there in our in our list of of options to see if that would make sense. There is, of course, in the Genesis story here, a a a, a kind of implicit on almost explicit proof to that to the effect of what you're saying because uh, there is a question raised about God's you know ways of doing things has God really said that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden so there is a question raised there so you know maybe that could help us now here is what the experts are saying for answers R.H. Charles says something is wrong with the text here Here is what he says is wrong with the text. John died when he had completed 20 verse 3. Uh, and, the materials for its co- and the materials for its completion, which were for the most part ready in a series of independent documents, were put together by a faithful but an, an intelligent disciple in the order which he thought right. Now, you have to, to give him credit for audacity, don't you? But he is one of the greatest revelation scholars ever. He's a great scholar of Revelation, apocalyptic literature. He, it's still one of his commentary on Revelation. is one of the commentaries on Revelation that has survived as an important commentary for a hundred years. This is not a, a joke, you know. But he is saying that there is something wrong with the text here. It just doesn't make sense that John died and left it for a student. He wasn't the best student. He had a GPA below three, and, and he didn't do it right. He just, you know, messed it up here. Here is another answer. Something is wrong with the author. This is the German answer, by the way. <laughs> so, because nations tend to, to develop traditions of how they, how they interpret things. And here is first Ernst Lohmeyer, and, and then there is Kraft, Helmut Kraft, saying that after the capture of the beast, the seer has lost interest in the story. <laughs> He's tired now. <laughs> Our writer is tired, and, and it's sort of getting messy, and he can, you know, he's not interested in the story. <clears throat> Something is wrong with the source. This is another one. This is Barclay, William Barclay, who many of you have uh, uh, read things by. Here is our key. The origin of this doctrine is not specifically Christian, but is to be found in certain Jewish beliefs about the Messianic Age, which were common in the time after 100 B.C., meaning you don't need to... Don't, you know, don't get too eager to understand this because it isn't really, really, you know, it is sort of, it's not an important uh, element in the Christian narrative. And then <clears throat> another one closely related, something is wrong with the script. John found this event prophesied in Ezekiel 38 to 39 and prophecies must have their fulfillment. No questions asked. There is a sort of script here, and that script doesn't really make sense, but fulfilled it must be. And our time is up, so we'll have to resume. Uh, uh, so our next uh, session then will be, and we didn't, I, I think it was right to do what we did today. Our next session will be February 12th. I will be going to Andrews University, which is a sister institution uh, this coming week, Uh, where I have been invited to give two presentations, one very short that I have called uh, uh, Dostoevsky, Ellen G. White, and the case for returning the ticket. That's my first presentation, and some of my students from Blood and Human Suffering will know what it means, the case for returning the ticket. And then in the evening, I will be reading a paper that I have to prepare, sort of like a scholarly paper, and my paper is going to be on the cosmic conflict in Revelation. 
and uh, I might, sh you know, sh send it out and share it with you as, as I get closer to, to it. But uh, we'll see how that goes, and, and I won't be here then uh, next week, but we'll uh, pick up again, and I hope that we will also see uh, some of you at least when Richard Bauckham comes uh, the week following this one. Thank you.